Welcome to the Tour Coach here in 2023, another year of the stories, the conversations, the roundtable discussions that come from my travels on the PGA and the Corn Ferry Tours, along with my teaching down at Old Palm and Palm Beach Gardens, or here in my studio in Mobile, Alabama. These are the stories and the guests and the people that I run into that I bring to you to help you enjoy playing the game of golf, learning about the game of golf, or learning how to teach the game of golf. I hope you'll enjoy my travels, my conversations, and you enjoy being on this journey with me. But I also want to remind you that this journey and bringing it to you wouldn't be possible without a special thanks to our longtime sponsors. First and foremost, Strixon and Cleveland Golf, Vineyard Vines, Bushnell Golf, and Buick GMC. Without those, the tour coach and all these travels wouldn't be possible, wouldn't be possible to bring these conversations to you. I hope you'll enjoy sitting in with me on another version here of the tour coach. All right, so joining me now on the tour coach is Michael Neff with Gear Sports. Michael, um, I got to tell everybody, I was, uh, I'd was i known about gears for a good while. I did some, uh, I, I used it a few times uh, over the years. Uh, went to Sea Island once with a player and down at Doral, had used it a few times with some of our retreats. And I, as I explained to you, like I'm kind of, uh, I'm very old school, real simple, uh, don't try to get too technical, complicated, uh, but I've been kind of easing my way into the 3D pool, okay? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the I love opportunity, it. Of opportunity to come, because I've got a belief like I should never teach something I don't understand, and and I'm not sure that everybody's like that with some of the stuff that's out there, and we'll get into that, but uh, I, think that's why. I was <laughs> by the stuff that I got to watch you and JP, Justin Parsons do, um, because I found that the technology actually reinforced and some of the things that I saw and thought, and you could actually measure some of the stuff you were doing. So I want to talk a little bit about what you and JP were doing, and I want to also get in. Well, let's start with how the heck did you get into doing what you're doing with gears, and how did you get to where you are? Well, first of all, Tony, thank you for having me and giving me a chance to kind of tell the story of gears and I'm I'm also thankful that I met you and and I learned a lot from you. Just uh, you know the f- three of us there just sitting around the with GAP just kind of sitting around studying this stuff. I I found it was really helpful. So first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for uh, I'm I'm grateful that we're friends now. Long and look forward to working with you. We're gonna do um, plenty. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, so I am I'm from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I worked. I've been a PGA member for almost 30 years now, and okay. um, and uh, about I don't know maybe like 15, 17 years ago. So I need, I need to actually go back and look at this. But um, I started working. One of my friends worked for TaylorMade, and okay. TaylorMade had this had just started this new 3D system. Started working with a new 3D system called the Mat System, and. Yeah. Maybe some of your your listeners might remember that they had one at the Kingdom down in in Atlanta. Yeah. They had you know we had probably like seventy or eighty systems globally. I used to go use the one with Tim Breon at Greystone. There you go. Tim Breon's one of my good buddies. He's in Foresight yeah. now. He he had it at Greystone, and uh, that's kind of where I got my start. Um, I I had won this award for selling the most golf clubs in the state of Oregon from Titleist and. And one of my friends, uh, kind of who worked for TaylorMade, is like, "Hey, dude, you got to come down here and check out what we're doing." And and um, 
you know, so I, I went down there and they they just started the mat system. And one of my one of my good friends, current still very close friend of mine, who I still talk to all the time, who works for Mitsubishi now. His name's Will Miele, and he um, he was running the Kingdom at that time, or he was running the mat system at the Kingdom at that time. I think really more what was really happening. And uh, I just kind of fell in love with it. And I thought to myself, this is this is what I've been waiting for, you know, some kind of really, you know, something to kind of explain what I was seeing. And that was really my big first introduction to 3D was just like I could not, there were so many questions that I had. Of, like, is that really happening? Uh, people would say things to me like, uh, you, you're, you're, you need to swing more left. And I'm like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? And how much do I need to swing left? And, and what needs to swing left? And so my mind just started really racing. And, and I finally thought, but at the time, TaylorMade really only wanted to use that product for instruction, or excuse really? me, for, for, for fitting, not instruction. And I actually thought it was, at the time, I thought this is a better instructional tool than it is a fitting tool. But TaylorMade is selling golf clubs, and they're not teaching lessons. And, you know, so that that's kind of where that whole – and then my, my mind kind of got really interested, and we started TaylorMade Performance Labs, and and we sold a lot of millions and millions of dollars worth of golf clubs using the MAT system. And the company that made that product is a company called Motion Reality, Inc., and they, they got a contract with the military – the U.S. government to do kind of a military application to to 3D, and so they would literally use the system and simulate, um, you know, like that's a pretty common thing that our kids now they, they're playing these simulation games, and it's like, yeah, that you know, 15, 20 yeah. years ago they were they were kind of the pioneers of this, but they were, and so they they basically went into this, hey, I don't, uh, we need to focus on military because there's way more money in that, and you know, we're not going to focus any more attention on golf. So they basically stopped supporting the the golf system, the the mat system. I happened to write a book on on called Drive Like the Pros about it, and it was basically using the mat system to kind of discover, kind of you know, we had all these avatars and all these all this data from touring professionals on the mat system, and I was like, hey, this is what they do. This is what the average tour player does, or the average player does. This is what the tour player does, and these things started to like start to make sense to me, and started figuring out. You know, hey, what's what's cause and effect? What's really happening under the hood? Um, and I think that's where I kind of got my start. Where I just, I just, I really wanted to understand what was really going wrong or right, and what would happen if I did such and such. If I flex my wrist more, how does that affect the swing path? If I, if I threw the club or felt like I threw the club or got the club more out in front of me, what does that do to the path? What does that do to the body dynamic? How does that affect the wrists and how does that affect the shoulders? And, and I started just putting all these pieces together and, and, um, and, and, and then the company basically stopped supporting it. So I'm like, okay, now we don't have a 3D system. Um, they had uh, the AMM system was kind of coming out about that time. And that was an inertial system that Titleist used, and I think KVEST is kind of a, a child of that system. Phil Cheatham built that product. Um, I think I'm not sure exactly all the all the branches that came off of the AMM system, but the AMM system is an accurate system. Um, 
you'll you'll recognize that it it's a um, it's an inertial system or a magnetic system. Excuse me, where basically there was these cables strapped to your each of the joints, and you would digitize the joints, and the cable was strapped. Excuse me, the cables were strapped to the club, and then there was, um, and they all kind of there was this big heavy kind of thing right at the base of the grip. And you have you have to have these cables on all over you, and um, uh, it gives you body data and it gives you some club data. It doesn't give you any shaft information or head information, but it gave you like how how much the the grip was twisting, how much the club was twisting, like called handle handle twist velocity. Um, and it was giving grip speed and twist velocity, and then it was giving a bunch of body data. Um, but I felt that was incomplete, and, and a lot of the 3D experts. Tony, were you? Did you have an AMM system, or were you educated on the AMM system? No. So, um, you know, my, well, that's like I, so J- I've had JP was. My, my first foray or venture into 3D was was KVest, okay? Yeah. And and they great to me. This is not, but like, you know, uh, I found like I'm not a rocket scientist, okay? Uh, but there were things where I felt like, and and we'll go into this later about other things. Like I feel like if I'm telling a really good player, a tour player, this stuff, right? Like it should be as accurate as it could be. Yeah. Okay. And there were times that I just I felt like there was huge differences in some in some of the reading. Okay, and and I, and they were great. Some, I mean, they treated me great, all that. Sure. But I, yeah. And I, I so um, yeah, I actually thought the best, their best feature of the whole thing was the biofeedback, where you could set yeah, something. Yeah. I thought for training it was good, but uh, anyway, so that was where I went with that. And then so I haven't had used 3D since then. I've I have well, I've used it down at Drow some. I picked JP's brain a bunch. Sure. Kind of. Where we are, I've always used force plates. You and I talked about that. Yeah, that was a big. I teach a lot of rotation, um, and uh, you know, I had I bought the second swing catalyst in the United States. So I, you know, I've always been intrigued by stuff, uh, but sure. I've been, you know, uh, you know, probably because of, uh, you know, it isn't cheap to get a gears and so on and so forth and have yeah. space. But and, and and also I didn't know as much about it, so that's why when JP called me and said like, hey, I, he was telling me this stuff and I was like, man, if you don't mind, I'd love to come over. And he was like, no, I'd love to check that out. Yeah. And uh, that's the sign of a good pro. Somebody that's like really willing to learn. And I am still in that mode right now. I want to learn. I mean, I I just, I need to understand there's so many things that, that we don't measure consistently that are, there's so many things in a golf swing that we need to understand why and you can make the argument like, oh, just get up and hit it, and pros don't really know what's going on. Well, yeah. there's, you know, there's a reason why, you know, the tour is so deep right now, and it wasn't right. 50 years ago. You know, I mean, the technology wave. I'm sorry to say to those golf pros that just think, hey, you know, technology is just, it's, it's, it doesn't matter. You know, it just matters how you get the ball in the hole. It's a field game to me. I mean, there's definitely it's, it's those are parts of it, but you can't ignore you can't ignore the importance of what technology has done to our game in the last you know 15 years. 
you know, well, the, with the invention of the launch monitor has, has changed the golf industry big time. And and it's and there's never been more good players ever in the world. The college players nowadays are so much better than they were when I was right. in, in call, playing college golf. It's not even close. I mean, not. like it, it's unbelievable how good this generation coming up is. And I really believe a lot of that has to do with um, the the amount of technology that that's out right now, and and frankly the the invention of the the, the launch monitor, which started with pretty much Henry Johnson or uh, Henry, jeez, um, uh, sorry, flight scope. Um, right. Uh, Henry. Uh, oh my gosh, he's gonna kill me. I'm so sorry. We're on. <laughs> it was okay. the inventor of flight scope. And 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 then flight, and TrackMan came shortly after FlightScope and and has done a very good job of marketing and and that that mm-hmm. really has has changed the way that we understand how a golf club is delivered to the ball and and back to my original AMM discussion you know AMM was a big part of that too and the mat system was not a huge part of that because it was really only being used for club fitting right. um, but the AMM system really. Uh, a lot of the high-end golf professionals today, I would call high-end, maybe I should rephrase that. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that I and girls that I think really have a, a super good feeling for, like the JPs of the world, you know, somebody that's like, you know, really understands how the joints are working and how the body's moving. And, and um, uh, you find a lot of those guys and uh, and they're all over the place in Australia. I mean, Australia happens has yep. to be the ground zero of really good uh, understanding of, of golf swing measurement. Um, uh, but but I think that the AMM system was a big part of that, and it's a little clunky. You know, it's it's you know the cabling is kind of heavy. Um, the the thing that you put on the golf club, the little marker that you put um, on the little marker that you put on the golf club um, right. is heavy. So it's really hard to simulate exactly. Um, it's really hard to simulate exactly what the player is feeling in any 3d environment. Um, so that's where I was a little bit kind of like, okay, well, do I go down this kind of magnetic road or do I stay down the optical road? And, and the mat system was an optical tracking system, just like they make the movies today and, you know, mm-hmm. how they do gate analysis at hospitals. Um, optical motion capture has been around for a while, but it's it's in particular what, what yours does It's op- and the mat system, it's optical tracking, infrared tracking of that reflective marker. Okay. And that is the... And and like you said, the downside of optical tracking is you need a building, you need a room, or you need tripods. You need several cameras, yeah. um, minimum of eight cameras, pretty much nine cameras sometimes, depending on what you're trying to do. But you need you need the, the cameras to surround you if you really want to get a true 3D rec- rendering. Uh, but the mat system was the only system that had body and club. So the AMM 3D system or KVEST or any other 3D products, they were really just body only, and they didn't give the full picture of what was happening. And what what the mat system did was it tracked the club and it tracked the body. And that combination was where my foundation 
and where my belief structure has come from. And I think that is, you take a kid like me who has pretty good ADD going, who barely graduated from high school, who probably shouldn't have graduated from college, um, and uh, did so by the skin of my teeth that has no real you know, education in any kind of mathematics or any kind of human biology or physiology or you know, biochemistry. I didn't have anything like that. In fact, I was horrible at it. But if you just sit and stare at a 3D model golf swing and you capture the best players in the world, you know, for the last 20 years, like I have anybody. In fact, most of the guys are my customers who are really sharp. Now they take this information and it just kind of adds, it really blows them up. But I think the, so the, the, thing the concept, I, go ahead. the thing I loved about it compared to others was the stuff I learned watching you get was tying the club and the body and what the body yeah. did and what I love it. Right. So if you kind of think about that, like the only way to, to track a golf club, so the, the problem with the mat system, one was For that TaylorMade did not – what's that? No, I was going to say, like, you know, for instance, like if you continue to rotate your chest going back, how like how that affects what your left the, arm, if you're out, sure. affects the lift arm and those things. And, but but then what it does to the face and what it does to the club. So I found that – I think that's – I think if you want to have an accurate picture, you got to be able to have both. See the whole thing. So that was the problem that we had with the mat system was, um, number one, TaylorMade didn't want to use it for instruction. They made too much money off of it, off of club sales. So they really pushed it hard just for selling clubs. And it was, at the time, the best club tracking system in the world. The problem with it was it was only 110 frames per second. So the cameras were not very fast. Um, And once you get... At 110 frames per second, full frame, that's HD, uh, those cameras were at about four, a little over 400 DPI. So they didn't, you didn't get a very good um, megapixel reading of that, of that marker. And the camera itself was very limited. So once you got over about 110 miles per hour, that system really started to conk. Like it started to, you started to see some degradation in the data. Um, okay. Once you once you got into that 100, you know, a little over 100 miles per hour, anything under 110 miles per hour, it was very accurate. There was no mm-hmm. shaft data though with the mat system, and we did not know uh, any of the bulge and roll or any of the, the face mapping was not hyper accurate because we had to use the ball to find the club, and once we found the ball, that when we calibrated the club, we had a pretty good face mapping idea, but and I would say we were probably a, you know, two to three millimeter deviation on that, which is pretty good, but it's not optimal. You know, in a, in a golf place, a three three millimeter differentials on a robot, depending on if it's a driver or an iron, is, you know, that can be up to thirty yards. You know, I mean, it, it can really move the ball. So knowing where the ball touches the face was a problem. Knowing what the bulge and roll of the club was a problem, knowing what the shaft was doing was a problem, and anything over 110 miles per hour, we started to lose de- degradation. So when the company stopped, when the company stopped using that system, uh, when TaylorMade stopped using that system, uh, I saw an opportunity, and I went to a company called Natural Point, which is in Corvallis, Oregon, 
who happened to be kind of the up and coming optical motion capture system uh, ping. There's a company called N, uh, Vicon who was the largest motion capture, lar optical motion capture company in the world. And they developed a system called the Enzo system, which some of your buyers may, or some of your listeners may have heard of, but the Enzo system, they sold two of them, one to Ping and one to Fujikura. And they sold them for 250,000 bucks each. And they basically stopped making it because nobody would buy it. It was too expensive, right. clunky, very accurate. The cameras were faster um, and even Ping to this day uses it today. And Fuji, I think, still uses it today. And the software is absolutely awful, but it's it's <laughs> accurate. It's accurate. And um, the people that, um, that worked for Vicon were hired, uh, many of the people that made that product, the two in particular guys that made that product for Vicon were hired by Natural Point in Oregon. And um, they're the ones, and, and basically over the over a couple of years, I was the first one to invest into to creating a Gears product. We call it Gears for Golf Evaluation and Research System. And I up to that point, I'd sold like uh, 80 NAT systems globally, um, kind of as a contractor for TaylorMade, if you will, for mm -hmm. selling golf clubs. So I made a lot of good friends over the years down that down that road, and but I knew there was weaknesses, and I knew that we needed to improve it. So um, we created the gear system with Natural Point in Oregon, and it was it did not go very well. In fact, um, we went to the show, the first show, and it didn't work. And we had three or four people that wanted to buy it. We said, and the owner of Natural Point that said time said, no, we're not doing it. I'm done. We're, I don't want to spend any more money on this. And their their main business was in technologies and like customers like Lucas Films and Activision and Microsoft. And they were making money that way. And he's like, I don't want to make, I don't want to lose any more money on this. So I came in and said, okay, let's finish this project. I'm going to get tailor-made to sign up on this thing. Just let me run with this thing and, and I'll make it happen. And so they handed over, basically, uh, Natural Point gave me the range of, of gears. And I, the, my, my number one thing was I wanted exclusivity. I didn't want anybody else selling it. I was the only one that got to sell it. I got to develop it. And, um, and so we basically found some programmers independent of natural point to kind of finish off the product and make it what it is today. And so we've got a couple hundred systems globally. We're in, um, we own, it's a small, small little company. Um, we have captured, uh, I think roughly 500 touring professionals globally now. And, right. um, the only one that we really haven't got that I, that I really want to get is tiger. Uh, hopefully <laughs> we'll get him someday, but, but we've got Rory and Ron and, DJ and Cam what, Smith what, and Tony. We've got a bunch of guys. So it's crazy. That, that's, where that's basically how we did it. That's how we did it. We we basically just been selling systems. We have we have more systems outside of the U.S. now than we do inside the U.S. But the main difference is that we 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 got a new camera that's 240 frames per second. We are we are uh, research grade accurate up to about 165 miles per hour club head speed. So once we got the frame rate up, then we could start measuring it more accurately. Our face mapping is 0.2 millimeters, which is the thickness of a piece of paper. Um, 
and we now know what the shaft is doing, deflection, droop, and twist. So we're measuring the shaft very accurately. We actually bought the algorithm from AMM, Phil Cheatham's algorithm, and we have all of his, that that math that, that he created um, inside of gears for the six degrees of freedom to, to know what the, you know, sway thrust, lift, turn bend, and side bend of each of the major joints. And we just keep, we've been packing it on and, and currently we're the only product right now in the world, only 3D product that gives body and club data at the same time. And I think that's the real story here, you know, to where we can I, move on in this conversation. I agree. And, and I, so I want to ask you a couple things. We've got about 10 minutes or so left. So I, okay. uh, unbelievable story, right? And like, I've been following you for a while, especially Tim Breon's first person that ever brought your name up to me. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, what are some, what are three or four things that you have found through all the testing, like that good players do that maybe we don't know, or what are some things that you're seeing trends that the best players in the world, you talk about putting the Rory's, I saw some of the Rory stuff on there. Uh, when I was with you, uh, you know, Roms, all these great players, what are some of the things you're finding that they do that maybe, you know, that, that isn't always, you can't necessarily see from a force plate or you can't see from yeah. a camera, those types of things? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I would say that I have yet to see one tour player have the same information. So that's there is, fantastic. so if you look at it from that viewpoint, nobody has anything in common. Mm-hmm. Um so it depends on how you define what common is. Okay. So there, I, I like to say that there's windows of, of success that every tour player does, you know, and the women are a little different than the men. But we have so much tour data now, and I've spent, like, the part, the hardest thing I've done is, you know, strap myself to an airplane and, you know, millions of miles on an airplane mm-hmm. flying around the world capturing touring professionals, which is pretty much my job. You know, if you look at it from anything at the high level, it's just to get as much data from the best players in the world as possible. Don't worry, and I'm gonna get your I would say, I, I would say, yeah, I would <laughs> say that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are similar, like how much they sway and how much they turn, and you know, but there's a couple of things that might be kind of hard to see uh, with the naked eye or on a video camera that that I have come to find. One is that. If you were looking face on at a golfer um, and you were to take the center of their torso and the center of their pelvis and you were looking face on at them, every touring professional, with the exception of John Rahm, that we have captured with an iron or a driver, from the top of their swing, or some people call that position four, you know, if you go through the positions at the top of the swing, from the top of the swing to left arm parallel. So from position four to five, mm-hmm. the torso gets on top or in front of the pelvis. Yep. So with that, and John Rahm, he, he has a short right leg, and I don't know if he uses lifts or, you know, his upper body, you know, and you can argue, he's like, hey, well, he's like the one guy that really doesn't do it. He's pretty close to doing it. I'm, I'm not saying, but the upper body really at, at no point in his swing ever gets in front of the lower body. Um, even with, and people say, well, driver two, I'm like driver two, you can, everyone, like literally everyone, some more than others, but everybody kind of gets that upper body from position four to five gets this, this, they get their centers on top of each other or in front of each other. 
And if you look at Tony, you know, I'll ask you this question, Tony, like where does, where do most tour players get their max peak vertical force? At what position do they, does that happen? Somewhere around, somewhere around halfway down, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So somewhere in that five, six, four, five, or five or five or six area. Well, there's right. no coincidence that that happens to also be the same place where almost every tour player has their centers on top of each other. You know, at that transition, you know, kind of in that loading from transition down to that last parallel. And then they reverse those, right? So you'll see that that, that those centers kind of reverse. That's one thing that, that they all have in common. So in other words, mm-hmm. the, the world, and we don't really see this, but there was a time when I was in college where the X factor came out where you had to get this huge upper body turn and there was tons of sway. Right. So you needed the big X factor. And I remember, I'll never forget this. I've tried this a million times. Many, maybe some of your listeners have, but I would sway my upper body trying to get as much turn as I could. And I started hitting like more chunks and more drop kicks and more hooks and block fades than I've ever had in my life. So I, I remember my upper body was getting, when I was trying to get that big stretch factor, my upper body was moving off the ball so much that I could never get back to it. And I was actually losing power. So even though I got a big stretch factor, I never was able to load that, that I was never able to use the ground or to load into the ground to push against it at the right mm-hmm. timing. So that vertical force was happening way too early. And I never really got, you never really got pressure on the ground. The other thing that most tour players, Rory's really the only exception to this is that, with a driver and iron, most tour players have no thrust. And most of them, the average tour player actually has negative thrust. And what thrust is, is that if you're looking uh, straight down on a player, it's moving towards or away from the ball. So thrust would be moving toward the ball. And we're, I'm specifically talking about the torso here. The average, one of your ad, things that your average listener is going to do is on the downswing or on the backswing, they will thrust or they'll take the club back inside and they will actually move toward the ball. Almost all of your listeners are standing way too far away from the ball. And that's another thing that I'd say is in common is that tour players stand way closer to the ball right. than the average amateur, like not even close. It's like I, I, I put people inside the avatar all the time and say closer, closer, closer there. And they're like, Holy crap. Rory stands yeah. this close to the ball. Are you kidding me? I'm like, nope. And that's the truth. That's honestly, the, that's the truth. That, that you'd be surprised at how close tour players stand to the ball. So, so they thrust back to the thrust conversations. They basically, tour players don't move the center of their pelvis toward the ball at any point. Rory does a little bit on his driver from the top of the swing to impact. He has about an inch of thrust. Um, and he's really the only, and he's one of the best drivers in the game. Um, right. But he's also probably the most into out and up. Him and Bryson probably are the mm-hmm. most into out and up uh, guys out there that For are sure. playing. You know, so that I think if, if you do a lot of excess of that, you're going to get a little bit of thrust. But in, with his irons, he doesn't do that. So, but average tour players actually have negative thrust, so they basically they don't move their pelvis towards the ball. Another thing that they do um, is there's a there's a huge variety of how how much the club at, at left arm parallel or excuse me at last parallel 
most amateurs don't do this, but at last parallel, meaning P6, where the club is parallel to the ground right prior to impact, the tour player's torso is about level. And most amateurs have their torso pointing away from the target about 10 to 12 degrees. And almost every tour player, I've yet to see any real tour players that have a negative you know, or that are, that have their chest. Most of them, some of them are actually open, but that, that last parallel, the hips and the torso, the hips are probably on average with the driver 20 degrees open and the torso is right around level, um, with at, at last parallel. There's tour players like Matt, Matt Fitzpatrick, who's super cupped. There's tour players that are really bowed or flexed, like, um, like, uh, Colin Morikawa. So that that's all over the place. I mean, the tour players, there's yep. nobody has anything in common with wrist angles. It's just like all over the place. Yeah. Um, even like if you look at Matt Fitzpatrick, I mean, and Tony Finau is another one who like really late cupped, like they're kind of cupped with that lead wrist pretty late, but then they mm-hmm. unload it really fast towards the ball. And I'd say the average slicer kind of has their cup and, and they, they do it too long, but they just don't, they don't know how to unload it or to release that properly. Mm-hmm. And so they end up not releasing it and not the face stays open, but there's tour player. The data on that is all over the place. I mean, so that's something that nobody has in common. No, no, I, um, I, that's the I love. And like I said, you said, I'm a yeah. big pivot and I bought a swing catalyst way back, you know, because I, I, I knew I had some guys getting better and I always taught them to turn back, turn through. I was trying to make a living. Right. Yeah. You know, and and uh, <laughs> I'll never forget. I was at a Champions Tour event, hanging out where I was working. And Tom Kite was there. He sat down at my computer, and I watched him hit a few. And but, anyways, he he pulled everybody up like all these models, and he'd run them to impact. And all these great ball strikers, if he drew a line, their rib cage was right on top of the ball, right their sternum. Yeah. And he'd talk about releasing the sternum through or whatever. You know, I, anyways. And I was like, so I went and bought a swing cat. I was like, well, shit, this guy. I mean, he knows, I mean hell, he's a great ball striker, right? Yeah. Like, and I, I would notice that the better my players got, the better. So that's why I was so fascinated by the stuff we talked about and what you've talked about here with that getting getting your bottom and your top on top of each other. Because I would find that the worse those were in line, the worse they hit it. Yeah, so what did we what did we learn like with Brian Harmon? Like we saw something with Brian Harmon right. that I'd never seen before. And one of those things is that at impact, the tour players, on average, they have the same amount of what's called rib cage turn mm-hmm. and rib cage side bend. Or for your listeners that don't know what side bend, it's basically tilting away from the target. So if you're looking right. face on to your to the player as they're swinging, uh, the targets to your right, the targets to their left. So if you're watching a, a player hit a golf ball and you're facing them. Tilting, so they basically turn the same amount as they tilt yeah. with their upper body, and and at impact, there's about a two to one relationship between how much the pelvis turns and how much the torso or rib cage turns. Mm-hmm. So those are a couple key things. Most amateurs they tilt more than they turn, and no that quit. is a fu- and that is a function of the club coming down too steep. However. Yeah. There are tour players that are very steep, so we need to be careful. But those players, the other thing I've kind of figured out but is really nobody's – no. 
Nobody on tours, they still have this, even if they're steep, they turn. The the steeper you are, the more stuck you get, but they unload, they turn to match that up. So whatever they're trying to do, whether they're hitting a draw or cut, they match it up. Mm -hmm. And I will say that the other thing that I've noticed is that players that are steep on tour or shut players, so Mm -hmm. players that are really closed face and players that are really steep, or both, they all hit cuts. Um, I don't see tour players ever hit steep draws, or if they are, they're not making cuts and, and they're no, fighting. Hundred percent. So, so if the club's coming down too steep and you're trying to hit a draw from that position, you basically got to tilt and stop turning to allow the club time to close, and that's a that's a real recipe for disaster that we don't, I I have yet to see in all the data that I've captured is steep draws. Tour players, if they're steep, they hit cuts. If they're shallow, they can hit cuts or draws. If they're neutral, they can hit all of them. So it's kind of like, that's something I also see. So so for your listeners, it's like, like, Hey, if you're trying to hit a draw and you're toe digging and the, like the club's coming down steep and the toe, if you look at your divot and the toe is digging and you're trying to hit a draw, then what you're doing, nobody on planet Earth that makes one, that nets one penny is doing. And I point that, pointed out net because there are guys that play professionally on mini tours whose dad's paying for them and they actually don't make any money. That's a different so animal. If you're, that's a different animal, right? So if you're netting $1, then you do not, you're not hitting toe down draws so there are guys that hit draws that are heel down most tour players have the handle down a lot um which is my which i love you don't see a lot of guys that start low and land up land high or toe dig not not a lot of toe digging out there and most of you amateurs listening if you took a divot you'll notice that the toe of the club is digging and that means the club's coming down too steep and you basically have to wait or stall you have to wait for the club to get on plane and and then you basically lose all that power and performance. And, um, you know, there's no way you're going to turn more. You're no, no yeah. way you're going to match up the side bend and the turn. It's never going to happen. So this, this kind of wave of every, everybody talking about shallowing is actually real, you know, and shallow might not be the right word. It, it's, there's lowering and shallowing and there's steep and narrow. There's all sorts of funny words that we golf pros like to use, but, in a nutshell, what JP was working on with Brian was, dude, no, he has more turn and more side bend than any tour player we've met, uh, captured. No thrust, more turn than side bend, and the lie angle delta, meaning that the basically he kept the keeps the handle down, and the guy just friggin' hits it out of the center, and it doesn't move every time. Yeah, he's and good. It's like watching paint dry. I mean, it's it's really impressive to watch him hit balls, but. You know, in, Brian, in JP's case, he's really trying to get that his his, sh- his trail shoulder kind of in a lot of external rotation, yeah. getting the club way way shallow and way behind him. Well, most tour players have the club way behind them or and are very open versus the amateurs. Yeah. The club's more out in front of them, and the they're they're closed. So mm-hmm. we're and I've also found that many amateurs think, oh, I'm I'm I suck. I'm a ten handicap or twelve, and I can't do what they do. And I actually believe that's totally wrong. Like, I could not, I could not disagree with that more. I, and I show this to people all the time in gears. 
and you should go take a gears lesson because if you do if you do a couple of drills on gears and show the before and after, you can do everything the tour player can do. You might not be able to do it as fast, but you can hit just don't play the friggin' tips, you know, play the blue tees instead of the tips right. and get the right positions. And even physically, if you're limited or, you know, you can still get, you can still get your body to do most of these actions I have found. Maybe not at the speed that they do, but in right. many cases, you're not, right. don't, don't lose hope. It's, yep. <laughs> You can do I, this. It's, you just have to have somebody that can explain it to you correctly and somebody that can show you what, what's really happening under the hood. And I don't know, Tony, I don't know about you. I, I, I've had some people, like I, I did a clinic out at Columbia Edgewater here in Portland, and we put 12 people on. And part of my deal is I do like a before and after. So I'll, like, I'll show them their swing, then I'll give them a drill, and I'll say, okay, I need I need more turn here. I need less, less side bend here. And I'll and I'll need the club to lower here a bit more, and I'll do a little practice swing, and I'll capture it, and I'll show them before and after. Like, dude, I've tried to do that my whole freaking life, and you did it in three swings. I'm like, I didn't do that. The visual power of 3D is what really does it because you can see it. It, And and that that is a huge aha moment for golfers when they can see it, and they can understand it, and they can feel it, then they can do it. But if we're just Last, guessing with a video camera or a launch monitor, oh, yeah. you know, who knows? What, what are we going to do? Last question. This has been amazing. We've got just a couple minutes, but I want to talk about there's a lot out there. There's 3D seems like it's coming out of the woodwork, basically, right? Yep. <laughs> it's everywhere, and it's now done on a single cell phone. I've, I've, yep. I've, I've not done any with it because I – so my, my brain was like, yeah. okay, if, if I go – into that studio at Sea Island or I go into that studio at Doral and you got eight cameras and you've got something on the club that makes sense to me okay I don't get how you can film something with one iPhone and it gets all of that information I get technology improves over time and I'm sure as your system goes along like there's no need to have wires I'm like you know I'm sure everything progresses but address that. I think that because I have so many people ask me about it. And, and so to me, if you give a tour player the wrong information or a guess or, uh, you know, or information that's like you said, it could be X millimeters off to me with some of these players, you could do more harm than good. So I just want you to address the accuracy issues between eight cameras and a cell phone. (laughs) Okay. So, well, um, physics becomes a part of that. Um, but, Basically, what you're referring to is markerless technology, and Apple has some new features that allow it to you to create it. And we have been approached by about 15 different markerless companies. Some are actually doing business right now. Some are trying to do business. It's about to be a very crowded. We see that earlier than anyone, and we could do markerless better than anybody because we have more data to throw at it than anybody. Right. Um, but the challenge with markerless is the accuracy piece of it. And, um, you know, you're trying to basically find the joint centers and then recreate a skeleton. And I guess what I'm, the other problem with, so let's just say it's, it's a consumer grade product that is, it's affordable. 
and right. you might be able to get some help. And I know there's golf pros that find it helpful. So however you want to use that, that's great. The thing that's not going to happen, you know, if it does, it won't happen in our lifetime, is markerless tracking of a golf club throughout the entire golf swing with any kind of, like, research-grade accuracy. Right. And people say, well, I don't need research-grade. Well, let me tell you something. You kind of do need research-grade because that golf club is moving at 110, 20, 30, 40 miles per hour. It's bending in three different directions at a high rate, and there are multiple angles to that golf club. So I don't care how much AI you throw at it, there's no way you're going to get that golf club really, really accurately measured. And like if you put a golf golf club on a robot and you hit one that's five millimeters off center, the ball's like 50 yards away from the one that you hit in the middle. So five millimeters is a freaking mile on a golf club. Mile. It's a mile. And so what I'm saying is my my stance on this, Tony, to answer your question is that I think the key to properly measuring a golf swing is you need both body and club. Because if you're just using the body, you, you can use the body, but you can see the club maybe on your phone. You can see it. Maybe that's better than nothing. But it's not it's not gonna tell the whole story. You don't know really what the face angle is doing at that particular point. All the launch monitors just give it to you at impact. Knowing what it is throughout the swing and what it does and what it is and what it does, telling the journey, that's what matters in golf, is knowing what it is and what it does with both your body and the club. And so we have to know it and the challenge of that for us is that it's expensive and you have to you have to be in a building. You know, our system costs $33,000. It's not cheap. And you have to put it in a building. So if you don't, if your club does not have a building, then you can't use it. It doesn't work. So we're limited in that. But I think that, I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be an initial kind of raise of interest on it because it's affordable with markerless. But I think there's so many people trying to do it right now that it's going to be, it's going to get a little bit washed out and, and they'll probably get better at it. We could probably do it with eight cameras pretty accurately. But again, you're just missing that. You're missing some, you might be missing some, cutting some corners here or there. And and uh, the golf swings, t- and, and you mentioned with a tour pro or a, a beginner, I think it's just as important to accurately measure a beginner than it is a tour, as it is a tour pro. Maybe oh, a tour pro has more at stake, but you know, tell, you know, ask, ask a beginning golfer or kind of like a 12 handicap, any of your readers, like what they wouldn't pay to become a scratch golfer, you know, or what they wouldn't give for that. And, anything. you know, we, anything. we see such dramatic results from gears. I mean, that's the biggest takeaway for me is that we see dramatic, quick results. And that's, that's the thing that I keep getting back from our customer base and our owners is that, dude, I just took this dude that, never understood this principle and they got it like that. And, and it, it's like, I was telling you, like I've been, somebody's trying to, I've had, I, I honestly have had tour players say to me, dude, I have taken lessons from everyone. And I'm talking like everyone and nobody ever explained this to me the way that you have. And I'm like, it's not me. It's 3d because you can see it. You can see it and you can turn the avatar around. You can look at it. 
when you can see it in 3D, it's so much more impactful and you can make the change. And these are some of the top, I, don't, I won't name their names, but these are like the best professionals in the world, like the, the you know, guys that have been on Golf Digest magazine cover, you know, and I literally have tour players telling me, dude, like, I, I, nobody's ever explained this to me. Nobody's ever showed this to me. I've never understood this principle. Why does it make sense now? And we have dramatic results before and after on gears. And I'm I'm getting ready to publish a lot of those. I, I'll give you a quick one. Do have time for a quick one? Yeah, real quick. No? We've got about a minute. Real quick. Yep. All right. Cam Smith, right? Before and after mm-hmm. gears, right? About 140th tee to green. Shots gained tee to green. Worst driver of the golf ball on tour, probably. Um, and we come to find out that most of that is when he's trying to hook it. So on right to left holes, he's awful. On left to right holes, he's actually pretty good. So after we kind of go through the whole thing and explain him what's going on, the very next week, he's eight in tee shots gained off the tee, tee to green. The first time that's ever happened in his career, literally like a week after PGA Championship, like in between the Masters, like his coach is like, dude, we got to figure something out. Dude, the mass, he lost the Masters with his driver. And he's right. like, I've got to hit this thing right to left. I've got to hit it right to left. I'm like, actually, no, you don't. You know, like you're trying to fit a square, a square into a round hole. So after that, you know, he's had a pretty good run since the Masters. You know, he won a, you know, he won a major, and he hasn't been below 50th in tee to green shots gained. So like, you can't really. Like, that's a very subtle thing that we found in there. That there's no way you're finding that with a video camera. No way how that shaft was moving, how it was turning, what his tendencies were, those little subtle things, you know, can really help. Not just a tour player, but anybody. A 12 handicapper, it can really help everybody. So there you go. Awesome stuff. Great stories, great insight, great look at the windows that people can go through. Uh, Thank you for explaining it to me. Thank you for your time. Uh, I look forward to picking your brain and learning more. Hopefully, I run into you at the PGA show. Um, but to look forward to talking and learning more. And thanks for sitting yeah. in on the tour. Most important, we're good friends. So from here on out, Absolutely. I love it. <laughs> Appreciate it, buddy. Look forward to catching up Thanks, soon. Tony. Thank you, Tony. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this edition of The Tour Coach and this conversation that we brought to you about playing, learning, and teaching the game of golf. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Tour Coach. In between now and next week, make sure you follow us on our social channels. You can always find me at the Dew Sweeper on Instagram or go to our YouTube page where you'll see a scene and a video from my teachings daily on our YouTube channel. You can find that by looking up Tony Ruggiero and the Dew Sweepers on YouTube. Until then, make sure you follow and check out everything Tour Coach and all our sponsors, Shrikshon Cleveland Golf, Bushnell, Vineyard Vines, and Buick GMC. I'll be back next week to help all of us appreciate, learn, and enjoy the game of golf.